Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 51 of the podcast. It's a sweltering afternoon here in the Vomitorium, isn't it, Dr. Winkle? It is brutal. It's a, it's like a sauna in here. It is really warm, yep. indeed. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping it's not going to affect our mood today in the for the show. I don't know. I got to tell you, I'm a little uptight. You're uptight? I'm Surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little cranky. You are cranky? Yeah, uptight and cranky. This yeah, could be yeah. a, a volatile combination. So I heard Cranky Pants had a vacation last weekend. Are you talking about me? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I spent a wonderful uh, week up uh, in northern Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, along the coast of Lake Michigan. It's right. A, 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 a beautiful part of the state. It was where great. The, where the mosquitoes have their own podcasts, if I'm not mistaken. They can get a little buzzy. They, Absolutely. Exactly. A little citronella flame. You're fine, though. You survived it. I did. I heard you did some cooking. I did some cooking. Lots of cooking. Yeah. Lots of swimming. Would you say you're a gourmand? Uh, I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to okay. say that, but... Uh, do you remember the parental advice, don't swim on a full stomach? I did. I and do remember that. You remember it? I, I broke that rule. You didn't follow it? No. You loaded up and you just... Uh, Belly flopped right I loaded right in. up, jumped over the dune and into the lake. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. You were going to ask me some personal questions. I was, but I get the feeling you're not always open. No, that's to... okay. Okay. Well, uh, I, a big event happened in, in your family's life fairly recently. I, yes. As I we, yes. Uh, we sent our second child off to university. To university. Yes. And uh, I, how, how are you feeling about that as well, a dad? Well, you know, I guess, um, am I a teacher first and a dad second or a dad first and a teacher second? You're wrestling with that? I am. Okay. And I have to say that, uh, you know, when you're a professional educator, as many of our listeners may be, and, and you have children, right? Mm. That can be a fine line, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I find myself uh, lecturing to blank walls now and to closed <laughs> doors. and I've yeah. lost part of my audience. Well, so. I, I hear you. But, I mean, my sense is that you kind of... You can compartmentalize, like, you know. You have oh, yeah. you have your role as a teacher. That's right. And then you have your role as your dad. And those 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 you keep a healthy distance between. And yeah, never the twain shall meet. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what are we going to bring the audience today? Because, as riveting as our private lives are, yeah. I think they have tuned in for classics. Yes, they have. Right. Okay. Today we're talking about what I believe you referred to to me in a, in a uh, previous conversation as the whole enchilada. That's correct. Right. We're talking about Lucretius and his one surviving, or at least partially surviving work, De Rerum Natura. That's correct. Yeah. And I referred to it as the whole enchilada because I like the comprehensiveness of the title. De rerum natura, right? Yeah. The whole of it all, kind yeah. of. And I've toyed around over the years with different potential names that really capture the spirit of the work. So you don't you don't like the 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 literal uh, regarding the nature of things, <laughs> Re- okay. concerning the nature of things. Yes. I don't like that at all. Okay. Yeah. The the virtue of a title is to be descriptive, mm-hmm. and to be catchy. Yes. And concerning the nature of things clearly fails on both counts. Yeah, I would agree with that. I have never seen this in a translation. I have never seen this book titled anything else than something like On the Nature of Things. Yeah, I think it's abysmal, right? It's terrible. Not to put down any of those who are fine translators of the work, but the title, it's got to be something else. So. A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, you're, you're just you're stealing from Douglas Adams. I guess. Okay. I haven't read that book, but isn't that? Yeah, I know you're making faces <laughs> at me. <laughs> haven't read that book. Haven't seen the movie The Graduate. Never watched an episode of South Park. Oh my 
I'm a Philistine. I, I, oh man. Nevertheless, yeah. that kind of captures what Lucretius is after mm. in the poem, yeah. right? A hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, a kind of disinterested and yet comprehensive, if I understand the contents of that book, a disinterested yet comprehensive worldview, for lack of a better term. Right, right. And um, in its own way, um, radical. In, yes. in many of the things that it's proposing. That's right. Right. But again, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, let's get ahead. Okay. Well, we got we got to get to our shout out. Oh, oh, okay. Right. Do you, you have the shout out for us I today? I do have today's shout out. Okay. Today's shout out goes to Ben Dyke, who says, I am a Calvin grad, 2005, institution where we both used to be employed. Mm-hmm. And I now teach Latin at a high school in Purcellville, Virginia, and a couple education courses as an adjunct at... Patrick Henry College. Oh, what do you know? Yeah, he said, so we've had, referring to uh, himself and me, we've had some near misses in several places across the country. I loved the show, he says, on the historicity of the Trojan War and the reading recommendations. I have been able to use things I've learned from you all in my classes. Wait, we've uh, been useful to oh, somebody? come on. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> I know. All right. Useful. I also enjoyed hearing from Dr. Bratt. That would be, um, from there we walked to Philippi. Yes. We crossed over to Philippi, yep. with whom I did have a chance to take classes at Calvin. You've mentioned the impact of travel on several occasions, and I can confirm. I am a Latin teacher because of a January 2004 trip to Italy with uh, two other professors, Williams and Gustafson. Wow. So it looks like he uh, Ben graduated just before you and I uh, started our tenure. Yeah, so there. I started there at, in 07, and I think uh, for you it was... 05. 05, so yeah. So he was just, he was on his on way, his way out. out. You yep. were on, you were like two ships passing in the night, That's you right. might say. Yeah. So thanks, Ben, so much for being a loyal listener, and uh, thanks for keeping the flame of Latin lit out yeah. there in the uh, the Mid-Atlantic region. I love in the blurb that he sent us, uh, so many of these things... Um, are great arguments for listening to the podcast. Yeah. It's, 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 he's, he's learning things. He's confirming things. Right. So, yeah, that's he's great. finding us useful. Yes. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mom, if you're listening, uh, write this down. Your son was useful to someone. <laughs> Dave, you got our opening quote today, right? Yes, I do. This comes from the fabulous work, Latin Literature, A History by Jean-Biagio Conte, someone we've quoted before. This is from the chapter on Lucretius, page 155. Quote, The most extensive biographical notice about Lucretius appears in the translation of Eusebius's Chronicon made by Jerome. So we got some layers there we got to cut through. Who also inserted notices from Suetonius's De Poetis about various Latin writers. So here's the quote. Titus Lucretius Poeta Nascitur. Qui postia amatorio poculo in furorum versus cum oliquot libros per intervalla insaniae conscripsiset. Quos posteo cicero emendavit propria se manu interfecit ano aetatis, etc. Which means, the poet Titus Lucretius is born, subsequently driven to madness by a love filter. After having written several books in the intervals of lucidity that his madness allowed him, which books were later revised by Cicero, he died by his own hand at the age of 43. Hmm. Now, this is coming from Jerome? It's complicated. Okay. So it's coming from Jerome's translation of Eusebius, who wrote the Chronicon in Greek. And Eusebius, uh, well, Jerome also inserted notices from Suetonius, who wrote a work called On the Poets. Gotcha. Okay. So the Latin that I just read, Poeta Nascitur, etc., that's Suetonius's work on the poets, translated by uh, the author here, Conte, and then the English translator. It's so complicated. <laughs> Joseph Sotolo. 
and uh, died in the year 43, Quadragesima, uh, at Trace. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I'll just repeat the, the part that was translated. The poet Titus Lucretius is born. Seems like every biography starts that way, don't you think? Right, it's a natural starting place. Yeah. Were you born at a young age? I was, very. Okay. Subsequently driven to madness by a love filter. <laughs> I saw you starting to laugh when I said that. <laughs> he skips right to the end. Yeah, so this yeah. is the Amatorio Poculo. Okay. Turned into furorem, driven to madness, Amatorio Poculo. Yeah. So according to Suetonius, Lucretius took some kind of a love potion. Yeah. I don't know if it was number nine or some other number. <laughs> and he immediately fell into a rage. After having written several books in the intervals of lucidity that his madness allowed him, this is common for authors, isn't it? You you go through a period of madness, then up oh, temporary lucidity. Better dash off. Better a, write some things down. Better dash off a book or two, and then back to the madness. And then back to the madness. Just <laughs> intervals of lucidity. Uh, he had those books revised by Cicero. So quos postia cicero emendavit. He died by his own hand at the age of forty-three. Okay. Okay. Do you do you buy any of this? Not much of it. No. no. Um, <clears throat> it's important to remember, I think, that Lucretius, because of his Epicureanism, mm-hmm. he is the main conduit to the West of Epicureanism, right. since so much of Epicurus himself is lost. Because Epicureanism was at an all-time low, you know, in the uh, the schools of philosophical popularity, you might say, such a, uh, such a second, a distant second, I mean to say, to Stoicism. Sure, sure. Everybody beats up on Lucretius. But I would also say that, I mean, what's reflected in that quote is also... Um, already a kind of a warped view of what Epicureanism was is right right it's, yes so it, it's, it's it not is. it's not just that Epicureanism was second place it was vastly misunderstood definitely okay all right definitely so the amatorio poculo right the love filled cup that he drank which drove him to madness that's a reference to a caricature of Epicureanism right that it all reduces to the most base and carnal pleasures right, right? He- hedonism in the modern sense of that word correct yes and so this is a caricature a caricature that it goes all the way back to does it bother you when I say caricature no am I giving you a funny look there no I, okay no, I'm, I'm fine with your use of the word which, caricature. which would you rather me use <laughs> I have no problem okay <laughs> I really don't know how to pronounce it uh, you you pronounce it the way I would. So caricature? I'm, yeah, or caricature. doesn't matter. <laughs> In any event. Yes. <clears throat> the pursuit of pleasure, that's the highest good. Yes. The avoidance of pain, you know, that's the, you know, the greatest evil, the thing we must avoid at all costs. Right. And so even in antiquity, there was this misunderstanding, avoiding the word caricature, of what Epicureanism really advocated. Right. It did not advocate the baser pleasures. So I like to tell my students, you know, when we talk about this, I ask them, I take a little informal poll, and I say, what do you think is the chief pleasure among the Epicureans? Hmm. Guess what they say? Um, Food. No, they say sex. Do they? Yep. Food is second... You know, drink is third, typically. But as we'll find out as we go through this episode and the the companion episode or episodes, yes, uh, this is not the highest pleasure for Epicureans. No. It's actually friendship. Right, right, right. Highest right. pleasure is friendship and literature a close second. It you know, it just strikes me as you're as you're talking and using words like caricature, caricature, <laughs> or the word even like the word pleasure. You know, I hear the word pleasure, and th- and even that, I think, has kind of become distorted. Okay. I, th- I, I mean, I could be wrong, but 
uh, I think that the word pleasure immediately kind of carries some baggage with it that it's something kind of unseemly mm-hmm. like a, i don't know, maybe that comes from a kind of a, a dutch protestant you're gonna so blame your background i here. am gonna blame my background but the, the idea that pleasure is immediately suspect simply because it is pleasure hmm. um but again to get down to what lucretius who lucretius was or what the epicureanism that he adhered to we have to kind of break down what he, what we even mean by the word pleasure yes. yes okay dave what does conte have to say about the reliability of that little biographical sketch. Well, I'm so glad you asked. You're on the same page. In all likelihood, Jerome's notice on the madness of Lucretius ought to be rejected. It is never recorded earlier, not even by Lactantius, another church father, although he metaphorically accused the poet of being delirious and would not have missed the opportunity to refer to so important an episode, that is, the drinking the love potion and Mm -hmm. falling into madness, had he known of it. The accusation must have first been made in a Christian setting in the 4th century in order to discredit Lucretius's polemic against religion. Hmm, okay. So that's the really key part right there. Right, right. I, mean, I think this will become clear once we start getting into what Lucretius is talking about. In many ways, it's kind of surprising that his work survives Definitely. at all. In uh, fact, it survived only in one manuscript. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The famous uh, Greenblatt book uh, about uh, Poggio Bracciolini finding the manuscript called The Swerve. Uh, so maybe we'll do it. I know we both read that. Maybe we'll uh, do an episode on that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fascinating. But it did survive. And I think what Conte is putting his finger on is that the work, the universe and all that's in it. Do you like that? Is that, is that yet another title? For it's this another thing? working okay. title. Okay. Yeah. The universe and all that's in it. Lucretius has two main criticisms of what's wrong with all of human society. Hmm. They believe that the gods care about them, and this fear of the gods, this religious motive, makes them fear death. Hmm. And this is why human beings are miserable. Gotcha. Because they are too religious. Epicurus and then Lucretius say, the gods exist, but they don't care about you. If the gods exist, they're off, you know, at their... Godlike baseball games and doing stuff like that. They're not worried. Right, right, right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, it's been a while since I've, I've looked at this, but, you know, the Romans had this concept of the Pax Deorum, like the, right. the peace of the gods. And as I always understood that, it's it kind of falls in line with what Lucretius is saying, is that um, things will be better on earth if we can just keep the gods happy doing their own thing. Yes, I think that's right, except the the difference is that for Lucretius, human beings can have no effect on the life of the gods. Mm. The whole system of ritual and sacrifice is frankly irrelevant. Yeah. The gods neither need nor care about our lives and what we're doing. We're like insects. Yeah, yeah. So you you think that a guy like Lucretius would find, would find like the, the augurs with their dancing chickens and their sheep livers oh, just, yes. just ridiculous? That's all absurd. Right, okay. When you walk through the kitchen, Winkle, and yeah. you see an ant, you know, crawling across the floor, do you stop all that you're doing and get down and find out about the ant's needs and wishes and desires and you listen to the prayers of the ant and so forth? Well, it depends if the ant is on my right or on my left. <laughs> Right. If the ant is crossing a liminal threshold, it's... Ah, okay. liminality. There we go again. <laughs> but, you know, the gap between you and the ant yes. is tiny compared to the gap between Zeus and your average Roman. Right. Okay. So, so why is Zeus or Jupiter, why would they be, you know, involved in the lives of these little peons? Right, right. That's Lucretius's point. So right. human beings are afraid of boogeymen. They're afraid of, of the gods caring about them. And then they have a fear of death when, in fact, death is just annihilation. So if the goal of the Epicurean is to be free from pain, the fear of death has got to be way up there on the pain scale. And so you want to you want to rid yourself of that 
Oh, you're right. So yeah. you mean that fearing death? Fearing death is, causes a lot of pain. Yes. Yes, that's lot, exactly lot of right. Mental anguish, and so it's that's in fact want... at the top. Yes. Right. Right. It's the chief pain. Have you have you heard um, Seinfeld had a bit about uh, like the the biggest fears of humanity? No. And number one was fear of public speaking, and right. number two was a fear of death. So he was saying that you would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, fear of death has always been way up there on the list, I think, of human fears across human history. Correct. And see, Lucretius, you know, is ahead of his time in identifying, in one sense, what he takes to be the origin of religion, right? The origin of religion is an irrational fear of punishment in the next life. Yes, there really is no next life. It's annihilation. And so you don't need to fear any punishment. That's the Epicurean line that Lucretius interprets to the West. And as Kante tells us, this is why Jerome Lactantius, and in fact, pretty much every Christian author treats Lucretius like a whipping boy, Mm. right? He is the exemplar of irreligious, impious, blasphemous thinking. Yes, but he's he's responding to the pantheism of his day. He, that's true. He's responding to the, the, the gods that appear in, in mythology. He's not responding to the, the Christian notion of, no. of a single deity. So you give now, Lucretius a break. So you now want to uh, fall back a little bit on your Dutch Reformed heritage and, and try to interpret Lucretius charitably... I think this is a good move on your part, Okay, Winkle. don't don't analyze me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good move on your part because you're right. Yeah. In other words, we don't we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in interpretation. Yeah. Uh, for a Christian theist, perhaps there is a salutary use of Lucretius and Epicureanism generally. Sure. I mean, I I have a I have to think that one of these one of these early uh, Christian fathers read Lucretius and said, you know what? I don't care for those gods either. Yeah, I don't have anything to do. I, but maybe it was just kind of his rejection of the of the divine, the divine origin that that uh, kind of rubbed them the wrong way. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, to yeah. my knowledge, I don't think that Lucretius allowed any caveats. I don't think he said, unless of course we could find a true religion that had a a properly dignified view of the divine who wasn't. Um, so easily manipulated mm. by our silly superstitions and rituals. Fair enough. Had there been something like that, you're right. I don't think that the church fathers would have beaten up on him so badly. Right. Can we? Should, we should do. I think a little chronology here. Okay. Uh, just yeah. Because, so we, we got don't, that. We don't know a lot about Lucretius, but what we we generally think is that he belonged to the first century uh, BC. That's right. right. He right. was born approximately 95. Right. And he died in approximately 55. So an almost exact uh, contemporary of, of Julius Caesar. Yes, that's right. So he was about five years younger than Caesar mm-hmm. and, and died, what, a decade before the real problems of the Civil War and uh, Caesar's death. Yeah, as far as we know. Correct. Right? I think I was reading something that there's another, uh, again, very short notice that said that he died like on the, on the same day that Virgil um, went through the toga virilis ceremony. Right. So he kind of came of age. But that uh, that's always reminds me of these kinds of things like Yingve Malmsteen saying, I was born on the day Jimi Hendrix died, right? <laughs> Did Not, he say that? I think one of those guys said something yeah, like yeah. that, right? And so the idea is that, you know, Virgil comes into manhood right. to kind of take the place of this guy. Yes, we've right? got to connect the great the great uh, artists and poets and musicians without and a athletes. doubt without a doubt you connect them together because it just makes it more convenient to remember right you want to see the influence and so forth right so we right so but in terms of um you know history that we can nail down uh we have a very loose 
bracket. Correct. Bracket for, for Lucretius's life. Right. Yep. So Lucretius is drawing from Epicurus. So Epicurus, an Athenian, uh, fourth century Hellenistic era, right after Alexander the Great. And Epicureanism begins to be popular throughout the Mediterranean. And unlike Platonic philosophy, it's a materialist philosophy. Right. Uh, so it's, it's similar to Stoicism in that respect. Stoicism and Epicureanism, both materialist philosophies. Yes. So the only things that exist are the things that are deliverable to the senses. And uh, this, of course, is different for Epicureanism than for Stoicism because of ethics primarily. So not in physics, but in ethics. Go further with that. What exactly do you, can you give an example of, of kind of what you well, mean by that? I think I can. Okay. So uh, the the Hellenistic philosophical triangle, as it's called, the three areas of concern for anybody who, after the time of Alexander the Great, so his death, three twenty three, down to thirty one BC, during this time frame, the three areas of concern are ethics, physics. And logic, okay. right? Yep. So ethics is human conduct, human behavior. What should we do? Deontological stuff. How should we act? Uh, the second one, physics, includes all of the natural world. So where did everything come from and where is it all going? Mm-hmm. Now, surprising to most of us probably is that the divine is included under physics. The divine, things that have to do with the gods, they fall under that second category, that second rubric of the natural world. The third one is logic, dialectic. So how to make good arguments, how to win good arguments, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Basic syllogisms. Okay. Right. So the, the importance of ethics, how should we behave, how should we act, like Cicero's De Ophiciis, this eventually eclipsed everything else. So that people began to be less concerned about physics and less concerned about logic. Ethics won the day. And, of course, everyone's competing to be the heir, the true heir of Socrates. Mm. Who, who's going to take Socrates' mantle, that mantle question, Right, right. again? And the Stoics probably have the best claim to it. And the Stoics were really, really popular in Rome. Yes. Stoic ethics coincides very closely with the Roman idea of the Mos Maiorum, right? Uh, the traditions of the ancestors. Right, right, right. Stoic uh, physics, you know, uh, religious practices, and Stoic logic, not given a whole lot of attention. Mm. But against that backdrop, we can see how Lucretius now, bringing Epicureanism into Rome, Lucretius is a clear outlier. A clear outlier. Oh, 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 sorry, I th- you called him a liar. No, he's an outlier, right? <laughs> he's a clear out clear liar. Out, is that like a southern expression? He's a clear out liar, right? He's an outlier. Okay, fair enough. Now, Dave, you mentioned the term mos moiorum, the customs of the of the ancestors. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? What does that What does that mean, and how does it relate right. to what we're doing here? Yeah, let's talk about that, because I think it shows a nice, sharp contrast with what Roman society generally valued and how Lucretius came like a karate chop against all of that with his work, which we like to entitle, I bought the whole store. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's getting better. Is it getting, it's it's getting better. I I, I like that one. I bought the whole store. I like that best so so far. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So the most myorum, the tradition of the ancestors, right? Most is your, your custom, your habit. Myorum means those who are greater than us, Mm -hmm. the double meaning those who lived before us. And also, because they lived before us, they're better, they're more important. Yes. So this included such important notions as, and here I'm cribbing from Conte, again, the back of the book, the Appendix 3, brilliant work. Yeah. Things like uh, abstinentia, abstinence, Mm. which means self-control. You have to know in each circumstance, in, in each instance, what kinds of things you ought to refrain from. 
And it's your ancestors who teach you that. Okay. Does that sound consonant with a life devoted to pleasure? Well, I, again, I think it's it's not it's not um, in agreement with later notions of hedonism and pleasure. But I don't see that dis- I don't see that as a um, discordant with Lucretius. Okay. All right. All right. Well, try this one on. Okay. How, how about Amakitia? Okay. All right. Friendship. Yes, you're right. So Conte says the concept of friendship in Greek philia. Developed by Greek philosophical thought, especially Plato, Aristotle, and Epicurus, he gets a shout out here, involves more than anything the affective relation established on an ethical basis that obtains between two persons. The practice of Roman amicitia, however, is radically different and cannot be understood without keeping in mind the conditions under which the political struggle in the Republic took place. Now, do you remember when we had Ed Watts on the show? I do. Yes, uh, the the Mortal Republic. Yep. And he's coming back this fall for the follow-up. I know. Yeah. A, yeah. So he talked about how all these these basic warlords and these families are competing for dominance in the state. Mm-hmm. So friendship in that context is not so much the kind of relationship that you and I have, yes. right? Where we get together once a week, we joke about literature, so mm-hmm. on and so forth, make fun of each other. Mm-hmm. I mostly make fun of you. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Amakitia in a Roman context is about forming political alliances for self-advancement. Okay. That's most myorum. It's more like a social alliance. So Lucretius's Epicureanism would be more kind of a throwback to the Greeks, would you say? Like he was, he said, pleasure is found in friends having a nice meal in the garden. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but that also is very private, and the Greeks never had a very developed sense of private life until the Hellenistic era. Hmm. This, I, as I read the literature and in, in, in my studies, such as they are, lead me to understand that um, after Alexander, after his death, 323, when uh, political life in the polis is no longer possible mm-hmm. because everything is now ruled by, by warlords, right. uh, there's an inward turn, right? Everyone is now turning inward. In fact, the the villas that began to be built around that time, you know, the, the large homes in the, in the city-states and then the Roman villas, yeah. they're all internally oriented. The idea is you surround the things that are important to you with a big wall and you block out the rest of the world. Hmm. So if you walk down a street, as you've done in Pompeii, yes. it's all dirt and dust and manure and hubbub and bustle and it's terrible right right right. then you open the door and you go into the atrium of your villa and now you're in a a secret calm interworld that's like a paradise right Mm. it's it's all tranquility now this you know what this sounds like an argument i would make and this sounds like an uh, an argument that you personally would say (laughs) architecture reflecting Personal feelings and introversion. No, I'm I mean, all I, for that. Are you really? Yeah, that seems like such a non-knowy type of thing to say. But that, that's why I'm I, I'm both thrilled, but also kind of a, You're little, a little baffled. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess I am. Um, I'm very skeptical of arguments that try to introduce elements of determinism. Okay. Into human behavior, mm. I want to main. I want to maintain that people act from motives and incentives and desires and wishes and wills and thoughts. Yeah. And principle. Yeah. I don't like to think that architecture determines behavior. Right. But I do think... It can reflect. Yes. A, yes. And influence and affect. Sure. And so I think what we're trying to say here is that Greek Epicureanism was unique in a Greek setting and in a Roman setting. So you're right that the Greeks had more of a sense of personal friendship reflected in their literature, but a kind of friendship that's divorced from public life 
is a late development with which they're not entirely comfortable. Okay. It's okay. even more out of place in a Roman setting. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, I buy that. You buy that? I do. I buy you that. with me? I'm with you. All right. You. So yep. let's go on then. Okay. Here's another element of the most myorum. Please. Auctoritas. The notion of auctoritas, we could translate that as personal significance. I don't want to say authority. No. No. Just like you don't want to say on the nature of things. <laughs> Concerning the nature of things. Yeah. The word is part of the oldest legal and religious stock in the Latin lexicon, like augere, auctor, augur, augustus. It expresses the ability to exercise a leading function in political life through one's own influence or one's ancestry. Okay. So do the Winkles, the Winkles own any big soap companies in the Grand Rapids area? We were simple farmers. Were you? We were, yes. You were were farming celery and and cabbages and things like that out in Hudsonville? Something like that. Potatoes, onions. Okay. That's what the Winkles were doing. Yes, but no, no, uh, no soap. So you weren't aspiring to the kind of auctoritas which would allow you to pull the levers of the state? No, not at all. No. So auctoritas is what every Roman aristocrat aspires to. It's what people think of you, and it, in some ways, determines how you think of yourself. And, and a lot of that is tied to who your father and who your grandfather were. Correct. Right. What they accomplished, and you can't let them down. It's a dynastic idea. Right. So this concept of auctoritas... It's based on a complex of factors, says Conte. Family traditions, personal qualities, the experience acquired with age, material power, the extent and strength of the bonds of amicitia and clientela, and so on. Okay. So this is quite different than Epicurus and Lucretius' ideas of happiness and the good life is to be found by an inward retreat uh, where you, you come into your little garden, you sit on a nice teak bench, you pull open a copy of Plato or maybe Dante or something like that. Mm-hmm. And with a group of close friends, you sip Merlot and you talk literature. You had me at teak. Did you? <laughs> Did I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, so when you earlier used the phrase that Lucretius comes along and gives a karate chop mm-hmm. to this. So this is this is what you're you're explaining here. This, yes. So it, it, this would have, you think when this was published or was circulating, it was being read or performed, Correct. Uh, it would have been radical to, For sure. to a, a, a general Roman idea of how one should be and what one should yes. aspire to. Okay. Yeah, the radicalness of it is not its existence, because of course the Romans knew about Epicurean philosophy as a Greek phenomenon. Right. So the radical nature of it is the introduction of it into a Roman context. So you can pursue all that Greek stuff if you want to, you can read about it, but for heaven's sake, don't try to live like an Epicurean. Gotcha. Because you've got to be useful to the state. Where is your service? But Cicero mentions Lucretius once, and very favorably, Admiringly. Right? Yes. Yes. So, which would which surprises me, given what you're saying, that someone like like Cicero would, would uh, um, you know, given his own ambitions. What do you got against Cicero? I have nothing against Cicero. It just seems like for a man of his own ambitions and service to the state, I, it would seem that he would have some harsher words for somebody like Lucretius. Yeah. Well, I think he lumps Lucretius together with the Neoteroi, right? These are the, the young pups, the new generation of poets who are not celebrating the virtues of the state mm. and the pride of personal accomplishment in the service of the state. But Cicero is enough of a Hellenist, uh-huh. enough of a Philhellen. He can recognize good literature. So he said, it's got a good beat. You can dance to it. <laughs> Basically. Okay. That's a little dismissive. <laughs> Can you see Cicero in his toga cutting the rug? I can. Tripping the light fantastic. Yes, I bet he, he had some I bet he had some moves. He had some when moves. When no one was watching. 
All right, so one more term I'd like to mention in the Mos Maiorum, the constellation of about a couple dozen terms okay. before we get down to Lucretius himself. Okay. So this is officium, right? Officium or duty. So again, Conte, the term, which probably derives from opificium, seems originally to have indicated the execution of an artisan's work. Soon, however, upon this concrete and material meaning, there was superimposed the more abstract meaning of rules governing an activity obligations entailed by a function. In particular, officium became specialized to designate the obligations deriving from a given function, activity, or social status. Thus, one speaks of the officium consulis, the consul's duty, the officium praetoris, the praetor's duty, and so forth. So again, we can see that a sense of duty to one's fellow man in an Epicurean system has very little room to... um, to function uh, outside of maybe one's obligations to your to your friends yeah you have to keep the merlot topped off you got to make sure that you know you have renewed all the books at the library no one's going to get any overdue fines or anything <laughs> like that right but the concept that you strive to make the community better for other people is not an epicurean virtue in any sense i, I mean i would imagine that you know part of that um the goal of living free from pain would naturally lead to a kind of a removal of oneself from society, uh, removing oneself from conflict. Yes, retreat. Right. Retreat into a, a private cloister where with hand-picked friends you can read, you know, hand-picked literature, you can listen to all the best podcasts, yeah. but you're certainly not going to go out and run for office. Right. So I know, again, to, to kind of to fast forward into the kind of the early Christian era or into the medieval era, I would have to think a lot of monks would read this and say, yeah. Right on. Well, it does seem highly consonant with the way in which they, in fact, lived. Yeah. But the official line of Lucretius is anti-religious. Yeah, right. And so the question for me comes down to this. Can an Epicurean really love his neighbor? Because, explain. Well, explain. so on the Stoic idea, mm-hmm. moral virtues and duties are equivalent to dropping a pebble into a pool of water. You drop a stone or a pebble into a pool of water. Mm -hmm. There's a ripple effect of concentric circles that radiate out from that. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, as as an ethical person, if I'm going to be an ethical person, I have to care for my wife, then my children, then the person one house over, then the person two blocks over. Eventually it ripples out until I am a cosmopolitanus. I am a citizen or a cosmopolites. I'm a citizen of the entire world. Yes. This is the Socratic idea. Right, right, right. The Epicurean idea is is no. That That's a foolish dream. You can't possibly be useful to everybody. Mm. And you really only have any kind of moral duties to those who are your friends. Right. Which is a small circle of people. So and there's there's nothing kind of beyond that? I'm, I mean, as I was kind of reading up on this, I mean, a lot of this is, is um, reminds me a lot of like Confucian or Taoist thought, this mm. idea that if you get the, the self-right, then that will naturally lead to the family getting itself right, to the neighborhood, to the city, to the country, to the land, to the world, to, and everything kind of reflects kind of a, a natural divine harmony. But you would say, an Epicurean would say, no. I don't think there's a thought like that in, okay. in Epicureanism. Okay. Not, right. not to my knowledge. Right. It's, it's one that um, eschews any kind of public involvement. Mm. You, know, you just simply can't be involved in public life because that's not the way of virtue that inevitably involves you in conflict with other people's visions of the good. Yeah. If you want to pursue the good, it's got to be a private affair. And it was this that was offensive to the Romans. I see. I see. Now I would, I would think that, you know, an Epicurean would, would also say, um, that, 
not everyone can be an Epicurean. It's it's I think I think a Stoicism is more of a philosophy where I think it's more it's more compatible maybe with other kind of lines of thought or or, or systems of belief. An Epicurean mm. would say, well, what's going to look work for me, Lucretius and and my friends. I recognize that if everybody did this, the whole enchilada would fall apart. Right. But I like you using my title yeah, there. <laughs> I, I'm trying to steal a little bit of your thunder. I, I don't. I don't think that Epicureans uh, thought it through that far. Okay. There doesn't seem to be an account of what uh, public life would look like if everyone were Epicurean. Yeah. Now, Stoics thought it out quite uh, thoroughly, and, right. they, and they said there exists somewhere the Stoic Sapiens, the wise man, the sage. We've never met him, but he's a person who has maximized his pursuit of virtue so extraordinarily that the individual is basically perfect. Right. The Epicurean said, you know, that's all so much nonsense. Hmm. Just mind your own business, basically. <laughs> stick stick to yourself and stick to your own interests. Some people read Epicureanism in a way that's not very philosophical, but they read it primarily as a reaction to the constant uh, internecine warfare oh. of the Greek city-states. I can see that. I'm just checking out completely. Gotcha. Because yeah. all you guys do is fight. Right. And I, I would also say that with the business of pain... A Stoic would say it's not, it's not the avoidance of pain. It's how you respond. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. In fact, pain has nothing to do with virtue. Right. You can be virtuous when you're pain free. You can be virtuous when you're in agony. Right. So it's irrelevant. Right. And of course, the Epicureans would say, no, that's not right. We got to take a break, don't we? We do. We're going to pursue this after the break. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Ad Astra Roasters. Ad Astra Roasters is a veteran-owned specialty coffee roaster located in Hillsdale, Michigan. Founded in Kansas in 2018, Ad Astra Roasters takes its name from the Kansas state motto, Ad Astra per Aspera, to the stars through adversity. Dave, what's your favorite blend from Ad Astra? Well, until this week, I was going to say Tenebris, yeah. which I really like. But that's, they, held the, that's held the top spot for so long. It's held the top spot. But they sent me this new roast called the Whitney. The Whitney. Yes. This is named after a Hillsdale College graduate who was a Civil War hero, is that actually. Right? It's good coffee. Yeah, I'm making my way through the bag slowly, meticulously. It brews up a good cup. I'm loving it. It's a lighter than the Tenebris? It is lighter. Lighter, lighter roast? Definitely. Okay, yep. yeah. Very sweet, uh, a little bit nutty. Okay. It's really delicious coffee. Excellent. I look forward to trying it myself, but uh, where I'm at right now, still Tenebris okay. is, is, at the, is at the top. It's a fun product to even look at the poetry series. Is a great option for those wanting to read a great poem while drinking their even better coffee. Head to oddostroasters.com listeners and get 15% off when you put in the coupon code ANAA at checkout. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by the good people at Hackett Publishing with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts and Indianapolis, Indiana. Hackett has been bringing high quality classical offerings to its readers for more than 40 years. Yes, I, I love their translations. I have them in my personal library. I have them on the, the shelves in my office. I use them in class. Um, they're affordable, uh, reliable translations that are close to the original languages, attractive covers, really clever cover art. I love it. My students love it. Yeah. I can't say enough about it. Good design, good layout. Yep. Later in this episode, we're going to be quoting from Smith's translation of Lucretius's famous poem. Yep. You can also go to Hackett and check out their Bryn Mawr commentaries. They have a full collection. So these are reader's commentaries. If you're a serious student of Greek and Latin, you need some help with Aristophanes' Clouds or the Plutus, one of the plays, the comedies that we mentioned in our last episode, you can go there, check out their enormous catalog, 
And let's say also, Jeff, that they have been supporting the classics faithfully for some time now. Yes, many, many years, and they were with us from the very beginning. Yes, that's really incredible. You know, yep. it's it's sad sometimes to see the way in which classics has started to be a little bit marginalized in the broader society. You know, you see the things in the papers about this or that being canceled, but let's celebrate a success. Definitely. I mean, not the success of the podcast. I mean, Hackett supporting the promotion of the classics. Right. Right, that, right. That's something to be really pleased about. Exactly. So, listeners, if you wanna, if you wanna benefit, uh, go to hacketpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Uh, find one of these wonderful texts. Put it in the in your uh, grocery cart there. Enter the coupon code. Did you say grocery cart? Uh, isn't that what it's the, it's the little icon? It's the I have cart. to. I have to just break in a grocery cart. It's well, so what they're throwing books in there and avocados yeah. and, and maybe a rotisserie chicken. Exactly right. I don't think so. <laughs> no, okay. Maybe some brie. Uh, Okay, what kind of a basket? It's called a shopping cart. That's the generic term. Grocery cart. All right, so go to Dave's shopping cart. Um, Enter the code AN2021, and uh, they will receive what, Dave? Well, along with the you know cheese sampler, they're going to get twenty percent (laughs) off all of their titles and free shipping. Free shipping. Great stuff. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Helwig and his team from Portland, Oregon have done it. They have found a way for you to brew incredible coffee at home. No need to go down to the drive-thru or whatever uh, stupid... (laughs) (laughs) You're going to try to come up with some funny names for imaginary coffee Uh, boutiques, right? I was, but I'm all tapped out. Are you? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a hot afternoon. The places where the coffee is mass-produced. Exactly right. Mass-produced. What I'm trying to say, there's no need to go there. No, no. Right, right. There's no grounds for going there. Oh, man. You should have done this one. No, I shouldn't. (laughs) But Ratio Coffee, two machines that they that they sell. The, the ratio, ratio six, 6 and the Ratio 8. Yes. Now, the Ratio 8 availability has been low, but very soon we hope to have a special promotion here on Ad Nauseam so you can pick up a Ratio 8. That's the one <clears throat> that I have yeah. at home on yeah, we, my countertop. Yeah, we've, we've heard. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. It's a beautiful machine, a work of art. I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not so crazy about the modern art aesthetic, but this machine... Gorgeous. Excellent. Tell yeah. us about the six, the, Jeff. The six is, I mean, it's a beautiful machine in its own right. Um, every morning I hit the button, it goes through the bloom stage, it goes through the brew stage, it goes through the ready drink it stage. Right. It's 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 wonderful. Um, I compare it to the previous machine I had. There's no contest. Yeah, you'd have to go through what, I mean, twenty or thirty of those, probably. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you will, because those things are manufactured with you know a shorter half life than a a pet hamster, frankly. Absolutely. But yeah. the ratio six, that thing's going to last a generation. Yes. And the thing, my wife loves it. Are your wife? And she is a much tougher audience than she's, I am. Is she kind of a coffee snob? She's a coffee snob, but she's she's mentioned a number of times, like, I really like this machine. Yeah. yeah she loves Beautiful, it. makes a great cup of coffee. Yeah. It's got some kind of a Fibonacci head. Yes. That... Uh, allows the water that's superheated, well, it's technically not superheated, but 200 degrees Fahrenheit to come down into the cone, disperse all of the nasty CO2 yep. into the biosphere. And what goes down into the carafe? Well, the, the best coffee you've ever tasted. Sweet, delicious coffee. That's right. It's not just that it's, it's as good as what you'd get at the brew beanery <laughs> basket and barn, bo- boutique barn. <laughs> it's better. It's better. And you can make it at home. Yes. Right. So, so Dave, how can our listeners benefit uh, from... Uh, oh, yeah. We want to tell them that. Yes, we, we do. Yes. Yeah. They need to go to ratiocoffee.com, mm-hmm. R-A-T-I-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. 
check out the Ratio 6 comes in three colors, and when you get to the checkout portion in your grocery cart, you want to put in there the code ANCO. That's right. And you will save? You will save 15% off. 15%. On your purchase. You won't regret it. Nope. Check it out. All right, Dave. So as we get back into it, we need to talk specifically about this work. Yeah, Dave, I think I think we're ready for the poem. We're ready for the poem. So this is what we call didactic poetry, mm-hmm. right? And what does that mean? So, well, it means poetry that is teaching. It's from the Greek didasko, to teach. Mm-hmm. And of course, the precedent for this, it's a long precedent, but it goes all the way back to Hesiod. Now, the listener will remember because the listener has listened to all the episodes of Ad Nauseum. Yes, of course. Right. And uh, we had two wonderful episodes on Hesiod. <laughs> I don't think they were wonderful. No. <laughs> they were early. The first one was Working for a Living. Yeah. And it was based on Hesiod's Works and Days. Yes. And the, the second one was... Uh, theogony the, and the Ecstasy. Yeah, theogony and the Ecstasy, right, right. which was about his theogony, right? The origin of the gods. So this is poetry that's written in the hexameter verse. It's Greek. So inspired by Homer, younger contemporary of Homer, Mm -hmm. and attempting to teach people in the form of meter something that's important, significant. Right. So the fact, just the very fact that Lucretius puts this this work uh, in the dactyly hexameter, just that meter in music, I think we we, we have talked about this before, would have put the audience in that particular kind of mindset. Definitely. They're going to hear something big. Yes. Something epic and something important. Yes. So I think that the... The musical, and you know how I feel about musicals. I do, I do. <laughs> the musical uh, Mary Poppins. Yes. I think there's a phrase in there, something along the lines of a teaspoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. That's right. Is that right? You're kind of pretending that you don't. Oh, I, 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 I may have heard about no, this somewhere. No, no, no. <laughs> I thought there was something about honey, but let the listener take note. I hate musicals. Yes. Right. <laughs> Either sing or or act. Let's not mix them up. That's Come right. on. Yeah, you got something to say, say it. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that is cribbed from Lucretius, because Lucretius says in book one, near the beginning, we can read it later, that he's going to put a little honey around the rim or the lip of the cup, the cup. so that the, the listener, the reader, can drink down this hard medicine of his didactic uh, lessons yeah. without too much discomfort. So you think like the listeners, he's snapping their fingers and toe tapping them and then suddenly, wait a second, I'm learning something <laughs> yeah, here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you didn't say there'd be learning. learning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So de rerum natura, which how are we going to translate that? Um, the kitten caboodle. The kitten, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. Is that, is that going to work? Yeah. So uh, Conte tells me consists of six books each containing anywhere from about 1,100 verses of poetry to a maximum of about 1,500, giving a total of 7,415. But not all of those six books survive. No, there are fragments. There's things broken up in them. Right. And what's interesting about that is the uh, Aeneid, right, is just under 10,000 lines. Mm-hmm. And Lucretius is important for Virgil in this way. I think this bears mentioning the hexameters we were talking about that are derived and taken from Greek into Latin, it took the Romans quite a while to make the hexameter uh, comfortable in the Latin language. Ah, yes. So we go all the way back to the archaic poet Ennius, Mm -hmm. right? Ennius is apparently the first person to use Greek hexameters, or that meter, but make it speak Latin. Yes. But it's 150 years, uh, or I guess... Yeah, about 150 years from Ennius to Virgil. In the meantime, a lot of different poets are trying to take this genre 
and they're trying to adapt it to the Latin language. Right. Right, right, right. So would you just go as far as to say is no Lucretius, no Virgil? Definitely. Really? So yeah. I think he's a, an essential link in the chain. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm not a Lucretius expert or a Virgil expert. The only place I could possibly, with temerity, claim expertise is Cicero. Yep. But from what I read and understand, this is the consensus opinion of those whose expertise is in these authors. No okay. Lucretius, no Virgil. No Virgil. And I think we'll probably talk about this in um, maybe in the next episode, but... Uh, there's a, I think it's from the Georgics where there's a line from Virgil where it's a fairly clear hat tip to, Definitely. to Lucretius, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And Lucretius, see, I mean, this goes back to earlier in our conversation. Yes, his antagonism toward religion made him unpopular with the church fathers and with theists of all stripes since his time, since the time of Lucretius. But on the other hand, he is a phenomenally interesting poet. Right. And his skill with the language is so brilliant that he won many admirers. Yeah. I, I like him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. he's, and in fact, the, the view of life that he presents is really very attractive. Really? For all of his um, dismissiveness of the divine? Yes. Said, yes. Okay. What's attractive to me is the kind of libertarian impulse oh. that I don't have to try to rescue and change and save the world. Yes. Uh, those are not my... Um, gifts and calling. You yes. know, my job is to take care of my little patch of garden where I have it, right. have a few friends over, you know, maybe make some s'mores, read some poetry, that yeah. kind of thing. Gotcha. Right. So you see that kind of that, uh, that individualism. It's very, very appealing. Yes. Now, I have to tell you that sometimes I wonder if I'm not being quite selfish. Maybe I should have a broader horizon. Maybe I'm not loving my neighbor the way I ought to. But Epicureanism is very appealing for yeah. that reason. I oh, definitely. How do you feel about it? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, and this is something we can explore more later as well. As we break down, continue to break down the idea of of an Epicurean pleasure, it's it's. I think Lucretius is is advocating for a simple life. You know, the the pleasures that one should pursue are are simple: talking with a friend, having a decent glass of wine. Um, you know, the uh, Epicureans will talk about hunger as the desire to eat as being a, a desire that is should be naturally fulfilled. Right. Right. And so there's something about just kind of the simplicity of that of the of that point of view, that worldview that I find really attractive. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. So I guess we're ready then. We've set the table uh, adequately. Yes. So we're ready to actually look at some of the poetry, read a little bit of the Latin, look a little bit at the translation and talk about some of the themes. Let's do it. Do you, ha- right. you want to uh, read some of the hexameters at the beginning? I would love to do that. Let's do it. All right, here goes. So this is from a book one lines one through, let's say ones through one through five. Aeneadum genetrix hamanum dewam quebaluptas, alma bonus caeli subter labentia signa, quae marana wigerum quae terras frugi ferdrentis. Con celebras per te quoniam genesam nanemantum. Con capitur we sit quex ortum lumina solis. Very nicely done. Thank you. Sorry. I think it's beautiful poetry. What, what, one of these days we got to bring in the, the liar to be plucking it behind that. <laughs> or maybe Mishka can, can add that in. Oh, no, Jeff, you yeah. are an accomplished guitarist. you got to bring in your guitar and play it. We'll do, uh, do kind of a, an updated modern version of yeah, it. Yeah, the listener doesn't know that uh, Dr. Winkle here is quite a musician. He plays the piano, the guitar. I don't care for his voice so much, i got to say. <laughs> no, just kidding. He's quite an accomplished musician. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, may I, can I read the translation of what you just Yes, yeah, so you're going to give us um, Smith? Is yes. that what we're going to hear? Yes. So the translation goes like this. Mother of Aeneas's people, 
delight of human beings and the gods, Venus, power of life. It is you who beneath the sky's sliding stars inspirit the ship-bearing sea, inspirit the productive land. To you, every kind of living creature owes its conception and first glimpse of the sun's light. You, goddess, at your coming, hush the winds and scatter the clouds. For you, the creative earth thrusts up fragrant, fragrant flowers. Sorry, For you, the smooth stretches of the ocean smile and the sky, tranquil now, is flooded with effulgent light. Ah, very nice. And that's Smith's translation, yeah, isn't it? It is. Yeah, the one that comes to us uh, courtesy of Hackett. So notice the first word in the poem, Aeneadum Genetrix. The mother of Aeneas. Yeah, well, of the Aeneadum. The, the right. people of Aeneas. Correct. Right. Who are, of course, the Romans. The Romans. Yes. So again, no Lucretius, no Virgil. No Virgil. So Virgil writes the poem on Aeneas. Lucretius writes the poem uh, whose inspiration is Venus. Now we have to understand Venus here. Second line, Alma, Venus, Kylie, and so forth. We have to understand Venus really as the procreative impulse. Right. So let's philosophize it. Yes. I mean, so, the um, listener, one of the most more jarring things about uh, these opening lines is, you know, having had this discussion of, oh, this is a kind of an atheistic poem, and, and uh, Lucretius dismisses the divine. He mentions Venus um, uh, in his first breath. That's right. right. And, and you're right, though, but we're not talking about... We're not talking about the Aphrodite of the Iliad. No, this no. is not Botticelli's famous Venus right. on a half shell. This is not, you know, the glorious w- woman as sculpted by Praxiteles or something like that. Right. This is the the need for all things to produce after their kind. Right. And this is why he says at the end of the first line, which is a, really a brilliant line, he calls her Wuluptas, the pleasure of gods and of men. Hominum diwam quebuluptas. Mm. So... All human beings, all the gods, what are they engaged in? They're engaged in procreation, right? Uh, producing after their kind. Now, in the third line here, we see already one of the poetic fireworks for which Lucretius is famous, and that is these neologisms. So he has this word frugiferentes, mm-hmm. which means productive of fruit. So the fruit-bearing lands. And this is the first occurrence of this word in the Latin language. He likes to in jam or shove together different component elements to make up brand new words. Right. So in, and as such, I mean, he's, I mean, this is something that, um, uh, a number of the poets from the first century BC are, are famous for as this is, you know, in the hands of guys like Cicero and Horace and Virgil, the Latin language, um, catches fire in a way that it never had. Exactly. Very well said. And Cicero will complain at the beginning of some of his philosophical treatises. And he talks about it in his letters He says, you know, the Greek language is so full and rich for expressing abstract and delicate ideas. And he says, I really had to invent this stuff for Latin because it doesn't have these kinds of ideas. Right, right. And so Lucretius is leading the way in this. I also really like the lines that follow uh, after that, uh, the lines that you read. um, To you, every kind of living creature owes its conception and first glimpse of the sun's light. At your coming, goddess... You hush the winds and scatter the clouds. For you, the creative earth thrusts up fragrant flowers. Now, as I teach this, and as I try to explain uh, to students what this means, uh, I think that the, um, the the Latin here is daedalatelus in line seven, the end of line seven, daedalatelus. So you can hear the word there, daedalus, right? So yeah. it means creative or productive or the earth is always making stuff. Right. So in my mind's eye, I see Venus moving along uh, across the landscape, and it's like that scene from The Wizard of Oz. 
Where everything can t- turns to color. Exactly. Right, right, right. So though I hate musicals, I'm throwing in <laughs> another musical reference. There's that... The second one. There's that part where uh, the landscape slowly begins to turn green. And, you know, it's like a Disney, really. This, this Lucretius image is like a Disney image. Right, yeah. She moves across the landscape. Flowers are popping up. The birds are singing. You know, it's from Bambi or something. Or Fantasia, maybe. I don't know. What, tell me about Fantasia. Well, I, it's been years, but it's kind of it's a, a weird kind of psycho trip of a of a Disney cartoon. But it, there's lots of kind of uh, mythological imagery and lots of of nature uh, nature imagery, which re- reminds me of this. Hmm. It strikes me as you as we're looking at this too is, you know, in some ways, um, the better corollary for the Venus in Lucretius's poem is again not Aphrodite but more like uh, Demeter or oh, yeah. or or Dionysus you know wherever he steps the you know the vines spring from the earth that kind of uh, pure nature yeah so why not uh, why not an invocation here because Venus is the muse right mm-hmm. Venus is the muse why doesn't Lucretius invoke some other goddess well i think it's because of of the um, the connection between Venus and the Roman people right right it's that uh, Venus as the mother of Aeneas and Aeneas as the father of the Roman people to, you know, to stretch it. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So I think he's, he's, and I think this is also kind of part of that honey on the cup too. Mm -hmm. He doesn't start, his first line isn't forget the gods, let's go in this direction. He, it starts very uh, mythological. Well, religiously. Religiously. Although he's going to subvert and reinterpret the religious impulse completely. Right. Later on in the poem. But he sets you up. Uh, Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And the word Venus here, you could actually translate it sex. Um, anybody wants to go back and listen to the William Perkins episode? I don't know what number that was. Seems like it was 18. I think it's around 18. Uh, Cranks for the Memories. Yeah. That's the one that Jeff came up with. Right, right. And we were talking about the different things that will harm your memory. And one of them was uh, Nimus Venus, too much Venus. Too much Venus. Right? Right. Too much sex. Right. So the word here, Venus, this is really what Lucretius is talking about. Yes. It's this impulse. You can see it in the gods and their love affairs. You can see it among mortals. You know, from top to bottom, the world is driven on by this procreative impulse. Right. And speaking of Hesiod, you know, remember uh, Hesiod, uh, one of the primeval beings is Eros. Correct. And without Eros, nothing happens. Yes, that's what this is. Yes. It's that desire, that um, that impulse. Right. Now, later on in book one, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but he's going to mention the character Memmius. And Memmius was a, an important aristocratic Roman who is his patron. And he's going to talk about Memmius, but that's really going to have to be for uh, a subsequent episode. That's right. We're up against the clock. We are. We got to get out of here, right? Should we have one more throwaway uh, suggested translation for De Rerum Natura? I feel I have the feeling you got one in the chamber. I got one. All right. What, what is it? All right. For Lucretius, this would be everything and the kitchen sink. I like it. You like it? I got a feeling this is going to continue into the next episode. Well, I got to think about it more because, uh, I, you know, I, the, the Smith translation. Yeah. Great translation, Indeed. good prose translation. Right. But, you know, all of the translations, they do have, as we've said, these kind of clunky titles right. concerning the nature of things. <laughs> Is that really what this, what it's about? Yeah, who's going to pick that up? I don't know. No. No, it's, a, it's a riveting read, actually. Right. But, yeah, they need better titles. And There's something like uh, Some Stuff I Scraped Together. For for day Ram tour yeah, yeah some stuff I scraped you like that yeah uh, what the cat dragged in what the cat dragged in that's pretty good yeah because it's both comprehensive right that's the rerum right yeah. it means just everything and then the natura means you know getting at really the heart of the matter yeah maybe it's uh, something like what I found on the inside.
Ooh, I like it. This you is, like this that? This is getting better. Let's, okay. Let's save some stuff for the next episode. All right, episode. we'll save it for the next episode. We do got to get out of here, don't we, Jeff? Yeah, but we have some people to thank before we We do, do have to thank some people. We need to thank Mishka, the intrepid sound engineer. Yep, makes us sound great every week. Yes, yeah, she does. Thank you for putting this together so beautifully. Thanks to Ken Tamplin and Scott Vincent for the great music that you hear throughout the episode. Yeah, the ripping guitars and all that good funk stuff that surrounds, I don't know if that's funk actually, it's kind of pop funk. Fusion funk. I like it. Yeah. Surrounds the ads. And those guys have been with us from the beginning. Oh, yes, they have. Hats off to to Scott and Ken. So generous. Yep. And uh, another reminder, if uh, if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, give us a nice review on the podcast. If you don't like it, um, you know, tell us what you don't like. You want them to tell us what they don't I like? I want our listeners to be honest. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, but thanks for, I mean, all the, the notes that we've gotten have been great. They've been wonderful. Uh, keep that coming. Yeah. But, um, Jeff at adnauseum.com. Yeah. Or, don't forget the V. Or Dave at adnauseum.com. Correct. We'll give you a shout out. We'll use some of your ideas as we have because, you know, they're great. We're, yeah. we're trying to build here. A you know a, a kind of an empire, a sotolicium of uh, individuals who are interested in the classics, a community with which we can. Um, I can't bring myself to say the word community. Oh, really? You were you were studiously avoiding that. Yes, I was thinking. You know, you it, you use it. It's a good word. Okay. A group of friends that we can yeah. a- avoid pain and right. pursue pleasure. And, right, exactly. we can retreat into our little. Uh, I don't know. Bodega? Is that the right word? Yeah. Oh, I like bodega. Yeah. Yeah. Retreat into our bodega and discuss literature <laughs> That's with right. That'd be really nice. So next week, Dave, what are we talking about? We're going to talk about Lucretius Part 2. That's right. We got more to say. Yeah. And we have some big, some big guests coming up. Some big guests. Big guests. Yeah. Some re- really surprising. Surprising. And I'm I'm personally very excited about Yeah. This. We've already recorded that one. We got it in the hopper, but we're going to tease people about it for a little bit. And uh, we really hope they like it. Would I like to talk about the Moss Method? I think you would. I do, because I got a big announcement. And that is, uh, we're starting office hours this fall. We announced this before. But every Friday morning, if you are a member of the Moss cohort, the Moss Module 1 cohort, every Friday morning, you get one hour of my time with whoever else shows up, just like standard academic off hours, office hours. You show up, I'll answer your questions about Moss. I'll take your questions on Homer, Plato, the New Testament, the Church Fathers, don't promise I'll be able to answer all of them, uh, but I will find the answer if I don't have it. Just hanging out with Dave. And studying Greek. That sounds great. Yeah. And, yes. and there's more. <laughs> Back to school sale. All right. So starting tomorrow when this episode drops, which should be August 27, you can get 15% off Module 1 or Module 2 by going to mossmethod.com. That's mossmethod.com. Get our special 15% off Back to school sale. Jeff, tell them about the stickers and then let's get out of here. Yeah. Um, we also have these these great stickers with the Ad Nauseum logo that um, you can buy in our under our merch link. That's on, right. Lurch with merch. Lurch with uh, on the on the website. And um, $3.99 right. for a sticker, but it's not just the sticker. You get a, a handwritten, hand-signed note from uh, the two of us chuckleheads. Yeah. Are we going to hire some flunky to do all of this for uh, As you reminded me, we are the flunky. We are the flunky. Time to live into the flunky. That's right. That's so $3.99, we'll send you a hind sand. A hand-signed note. Yes. Check it out. All right, Dave, you got the gustatory parting shot, don't you? Nice of you to remember. Yes, I do. This is from S.G.D. Singh from his work Emergence. And he says, quote, It's called an artichoke, Lexi told him. It's good for you. Good for you how? I mean, the choke part I get. (laughs) That's great. Thanks for listening. 